This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. My next guest has just joined me in the studio. Visual artist Michael Vale has a new exhibition opening at Anna Pappas Gallery tomorrow night and running through until the 5th of November. It's called The Transit of Mercury. And, uh, Michael, welcome to Triple R. Thanks very much, Richard. Thanks for having me. My very great pleasure. Now... Before we talk about the work uh, and about uh, yourself, I wanted to ask about the title of the exhibition. <laughs> the transit of Mercury, a transit of any planet across the face of the sun, is quite a rare and unusual event. Um, I'm just wondering, is this a reflection on the frequency with which you exhibit? or? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it, uh, tra- Mercury actually transits um, 13 times a year. Uh, sorry, 13 times a century, slight difference. Um, so uh, that's probably around about the same amount of time I exhibit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, you know, there's been a lot of a lot of press about the transit of Venus and what have you. But um, um, I thought there was something special about uh, about little Mercury making its way across. Um, I've looked up all the astrological kind of readings of it, and it's um, it's supposed to be about communication. But um, I like to imagine that it's. Um, that it kind of throws everyone here on Earth into a state of um, uncertainty and confusion and um, head scratching and uh, sort of twilight zone. Yeah. Well, that twilight zone idea yeah. is certainly expressed in the paintings which make up this exhibition. Uh, there's a, a real sense of that uh, I don't know of strangeness about them, which which intrigued me immediately. Looking at one of the the key publicity images, for example, this is music to my ears. Uh, the word strangeness. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, in terms of what you're trying to represent in your work, uh, I mean, I don't want to use something uh, a phrase as cliched as surrealist, for example. Even though, in its true sense, that idea of drawing on, on the subconscious and reflecting that could be applicable to your work. But what what are you kind of hoping to to explore through your painting? Um, well, I've always been interested in narrative, um, but I'm interested in the textures of narrative rather than. Um, than plain storytelling per se, um, which is one of the reasons, I guess, um, you know, I've been interested in, in people like um, Lewis Carroll and Rambeau, who both get mentioned in the, uh, in the blurb. Um, there's a kind of a, a suggestion of a, um, a strange time that's kind of expressed through metaphors and adjectives, etc., um, rather than describing specific events. So it's, it's that atmosphere that I, that I try to kind of conjure up, I guess. Um, uh, I think music does it very successfully in many instances, and, uh, and that's what interests me about what you can do with a paintbrush sometimes, yeah. yeah. You've mentioned yeah. Lewis Carroll, the fact that yeah. one of your paintings is called <laughs> The Brilling. Uh, immediately, <laughs> I, I spot the Carroll reference, but yeah. also the, the fusing together that Carroll did with portmanteau words. You're creating these perhaps portmanteau images. Ah, um, that's nicely put. Yeah. The, uh, the artwork, <laughs> The Brilling, if people go yeah. to anapapasgallery.com, they can see that it's a, a dog headed man smoking a pipe in some strange graveyard at twilight but his head appears to be made of bandages so you're, you're kind of so he's a mummy at the same time so there's all these different aspects and elements that you've that you've drawn upon and and evoking in the in a single central image uh please don't ask me to explain the meaning because um uh, it's very much open for interpretation but um uh a lot of it's kind of spontaneous imagery and um that's something else that i've been interested in 
um, particularly through um, Arthur Rambeau's idea of spiralling imagery, uh, which obviously he was referring to words. Um, but I like the idea of, and I, you know, this kind of ties in with the Surrealist Project a bit as well, that, um, that one image leads to another and um, without being specific about what it might mean, you kind of trust the instinct um, see what you end up with and uh, maybe do a bit of tailoring at the end. So um, I guess my aim is to surprise myself with with the images and um, think about what they might possibly mean later on. Well, certainly if they surprise you, they're, they're certain to surprise the viewer <laughs> as well. I hope so. Yeah. yeah. Now, you mentioned Rambo. I'm, I'm guessing mm. there's been no, uh, what, uh, disordering of the senses when you create work? <laughs> of course not, Richard. <laughs> In fact, I'm not sure what you mean there. <laughs> How do you work? Tell us about kind of your, your process. Uh, uh, are you somebody who, for example, researches and ponders and thinks and then works in a sudden great flurry of activity when all of those ideas are, are boiled down or are you more methodical in your approach? Um, look, I, I guess I'm, I'm sort of methodical in a chaotic way, if that makes any sense at all. Um, you know, I, I sort of work fairly constantly and, uh, you know, I, I work in other media as well, but w- with my paintings, I normally have several um, in various stages of unfinishedness. Um, they all start with a coloured underpainting and then I just start gradually... Um, um, I, I read once that Leonardo da Vinci really liked working with um, uh, rising damp stains on the wall and kind of turning them into imagery, and I think I think that's a pretty good um, analogy of the painting process, you know, kind of make a few marks and see what it looks like. Um, and um, so, it, you know, it's, a, it's quite an abstract kind of beginning, and then... Um, and then it becomes more and more intuitive. You know, I need <clears throat> need something dark over in that corner. Um, <clears throat> and what what can that dark thing be? Maybe maybe an anteater. Why not? You know. Um, so chaotic um, yeah. method, I guess. As yeah. opposed to uh, that process of, of sculpting where, what's the phrase, you just kind of like chisel away everything that isn't a sculpture. <laughs> kind of, but, uh, so because that... Uh, analogy tends to suggest that you know instinctively that there is something in the heart of the the marble or whatever it is that you're working with whereas your um your instinct is to not look at the center but look at the edges and slowly pull things together yes <clears throat> absolutely um you know and i think I, I share that belief that um um it's a bit like you know when you uh, just before you watch a film you're looking at a blank wall and suddenly um um, suddenly that wall becomes a window and you, you kind of feel that everything was hidden in the wall all along. And uh, I feel that with a, with a painted, um, with just a flat painted surface that it's just a matter of massaging it a bit and um, strange things will emerge. Michael Vale's exhibition, The Transit of Mercury, is on from tomorrow through until the 5th of November at Anna Pappas Gallery uh, in Carlton Street. Peran. Michael, how many uh, paintings are there in the exhibition? And is there more than just painting? Uh, yes, there's, um, there's also a seven-minute, uh, what I call a video collage as well, um, which is also called The Transit of Mercury. Um, there are 12 paintings in all, um, and uh, the, um, uh, the Anapapas Gallery have been fantastically accommodating, um, and it's given me their most, their fabulous and beautiful upstairs space. And uh, with help from everyone down there, we've painted the walls a fabulous dark green. So the aim is very much to, um, when people come up the stairs, to kind of enter a what I hope is a slightly sinister zone, a bit like a deep forest or something. And uh, uh, the paintings are sort of... Um, 
um, gloaming uh, on the walls, waiting waiting for you. Um, and the um, the video collage, which um, uh, I hope doesn't sound too pretentious as a term, but it's um, I like to think it's somewhere between a mashup and a video essay. There's lots of hijacked footage uh, with modified sound, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which um, which aims to kind of conjure up a, um, an immersive soundtrack for the show. Which yeah. reinforces, as you said earlier, mm. your interest in narrative, but also mm. kind of uh, throwing that narrative off the rails, so to speak. Yeah. Because you've uh, worked as a screenwriter as, as well as a visual artist, haven't you? Uh, well, I've, I've worked as a paid uh, scriptwriter for children's TV, and I've worked as an unpaid screenwriter in uh, collaborations with my partner, Donna McRae, so uh, uh, on um, the the wonderful feature film Johnny Ghost. Please look it up. Um, the uh, and and quite a few smaller projects as well. So yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm very interested in other media. I'm very interested in literature, obviously, and yeah. uh, and music and words and all those things. And yeah. bringing those ideas together, as we've said, in in images, kind of yeah. which coalesce yeah. over time in your work. Yeah, so, indeed, yeah. indeed. So as I said, the exhibition is called the Transit of Mercury. It's on uh, from tomorrow until the fifth of November at Anna Pappas Gallery, located at two to four Carlton Street, Paran. And you can find out more information at www.annapappasgallery.com. Michael Vale, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. A pleasure, Richard. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I'm joined in the studio by actor Brian Lipson, who, uh, if you're a, a theatre goer around Melbourne, you may have seen him in a, in a wide range of productions, whether at Arts House or at Red Stitch or uh, elsewhere with Bell Shakespeare, many other companies. But uh, Brian, you're currently working with Geelong's internationally acclaimed back-to-back theatre. Now, um, First of all, I'm just uh, happy to have you in the studio because it's always a pleasure to catch up. A great pleasure. Thank but you. Um, Lady Eats Apple is Back to Back's latest show and it kind of continues an interest that the company have developed in religion, which we saw represented in um, uh, uh, Ganesh versus the Third Reich, for example. They've also done Hell House yes. at, uh, at the meat market, so directly tapping into some kind of fundamentalist Christian kind of representation around sin and redemption and so forth mm. how overtly is lady eats apple which obviously instantly seems to reference uh, adam and eve for example yes. how overtly is this looking at religion um I, I suppose it is fairly overt um to tell you the truth we haven't talked about it very much um it, but it's such a big um subject that it's one that you can't really talk about you can only um well unless you're that way inclined and i don't think we are really um it's 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 such a big subject that 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 once you sort of start down that route hundreds and hundreds of of um uh associations start to tumble in and um i suppose what you what you'll see if you go and see the show is 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 all of these um impressions um sort of vomited out <laughs> and uh, you've got to you've got to pick through the vomit and find the 
good bits. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that process of devising work and making work and, mm. and being struck by an image or a sound or an idea and then seeing logically where that can take you, whether yes. in the rehearsal studio or on stage and the yes. physical work, is a, a fascinating way to make theatre. Talk to us about what it's like for you to, to go into and work with Back to Back because the yeah. ensemble at Back to Back who are uh, actors who are perceived to have uh, an intellectual disability mm. have been working very closely together for quite a few years now as a core group. So yeah, yeah. for you, the, one of the challenges to begin with is just going, well, these are people who know each other extraordinarily well. Yeah. I'm the stranger in the rehearsal room. That's exactly what it feels like um, at first. But it doesn't take long um, because... Um, they're very welcoming and um and because they are so experienced um and also experienced at working with lots of different people um they quite quickly adapt um but they're also um not very forgiving (laughs) so you know you you have to keep up to the mark and um you know that i've wanted to work with them for um, as long as I've known about them. And um, I always love what they do. And I find it um, a very, very rigorous business. Um, and I, I have to really be on my metal all the time. And um, that's just delightful, yeah. How different is it working with uh, in this kind of devised process that back-to-back use with uh, Bruce Gladwin, the, the artistic director, mm. kind of guiding that process as opposed to uh, a much more script-based process such as, I mean, uh, you were in the MTC production The Crucible yeah. uh, not that long ago with Sam Strong directing, mm. for example. So which so where you're working with text as a yeah. and a very established, significant theatrical text. Yeah. How different is it in that devised process? Yes, um, well, there are a lot of similarities, but there are a lot of differences too. Um, I've done a lot of devising work over my life, and and that's what I used to do um, exclusively um, uh, decades ago when I lived in England, um, making work. And I still make work um, of my own and with collaborators um, from scratch. Uh, So that wasn't particularly... Um, you know, surprising to me. But um, when we when we work with um, when we when we made this work, and I came in quite late because actually they've been developing it for I think over six years, and I only came in a few months ago because um, luckily one, one of the ensemble um, decided they they weren't going to be in the show um, for personal reasons um i um so i was i i I, and bruce was not sure whether he wanted to have a guest um, artist doing this show it was devised really for the ensemble itself without a guest artist um but um he asked me to come in for three days and just mess around and see what came up and see if um, it would work to have a guest actor. And um, in that three days, we, um, we just improvised and uh, came up with some really, really juicy material. And so um, he couldn't 
throw me out after <laughs> that because you know we've we made that material together and you know nobody else is going to be able to do it yeah. yeah now one of the things that intrigues me about lady eats apple apart from the fact that it's a new work by back to back which in itself is exciting having seen mm. several of their productions over the years now and always been fascinated by the end result and equally fascinated i have to say with the process by which they make work yeah um uh is the way this is being staged as mm. well it's um i'm hearing rumors of some giant inflatable space that it has yes. been performed in um yes i don't really know how much to give away um uh, i haven't been given instructions on this uh all i can tell you is it is mind-blowing it is mind-blowing in terms of um the, the the just the technical challenges which this incredible team uh are dealing with um at, as we speak um they're beyond anything anyone has ever had to deal with in in theatre i think i can't imagine that you know putting on huge wagner operas could could compete it's extraordinary um but also it's mind-blowing in terms of of um the effect it will have on the audience i think i hope i i feel confident I'm, given how striking back-to-back's work has been in the past, I have no doubt that this will be kind of visually quite dramatic. And I understand mm. that it is certainly the perhaps the most kind of elaborate or complex work that the company has done to date as well. Oh, I'm so certain of that. Yeah, and that's uh, thanks in part to the assistance of the Australian Government's major festivals initiative and the Confederation of Australian International Arts Festivals who've helped commission and develop the work. So I'm yeah. fascinated to see where it goes after Melbourne. And I'm sure it is already kind of in two years' time it'll be playing somewhere in Europe if it's not being booked there already. I think it has. Yeah. Yeah. Um, talk to us about working with the the performers, the, the core company members mm. of Back to Back. Um, as I said, they're perceived to have an intellectual disability, yeah. but that doesn't stop them making rigorous and remarkable work. And, yeah. and indeed, the, the I guess, the what some people would see as a uh, a disconnect between intellectual disability and artistic artistic rigor has yeah. been explored by the company previously Absolutely. in some of their work. Yeah. Is it any different to working with any other company? Um, oh yes, it is different. Um, uh, th- there's a, a much uh, that you know. Y- you have to be very, very honest, and there, there's no way that you can um, uh, get by on on clever bits of um technique or something um you 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 have to actually engage with each person as you're working with them and they have to engage with you and um and they what they want is honesty yeah and what and i think that's what bruce wants too and that's why bruce loves working with this ensemble and why he's chosen these bits these individuals because each one of them in a very different way from each other um, is able to 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 kind of bring something to a show which nobody else could do there is no um you couldn't you couldn't have understudies you know these people know what they're talking about and um have uh complete conviction in what they what they're doing it goes beyond just acting um and it's very hard to compete with that and i think i i think everybody has a different 
where everybody who works with the company has a different method of of, of um, dealing with that. Um, and I think mine is just to uh, be open to the wonder of it and not try to kind of do anything to impose anything or or to or to bring my um, my personal concerns in my work to it. I mean, they do come out, obviously, but but really, I feel what I have to do is is um, um, help the audience to to experience what I'm experiencing in encountering this fantastic ensemble. You yeah. used the phrase being open to the wonder of it. That's what mm. I uh, would recommend to all audience members as well and it's certainly something that I'm looking forward to is the wonder that will be uh, evoked and created on stage by Back to Back Theatre in Lady Eats Apple which is having its world premiere as part of this year's Melbourne Festival. It's on at Hamer Hall Arts Centre Melbourne from the 8th until the 12th of October Saturdays to Wednesdays at 8pm uh, with additional shows Tuesdays, Wednesdays at 1pm and Sunday at 2pm runs for one hour you can uh, find out ticketing details and booking uh, information at www.festival.melbourne that's Lady Eats Apple the latest work by Back to Back Theatre we've been speaking to uh, Brian Lipson who's a guest performer with the ensemble from Back to Back in the work Brian thank you so much for joining us thank you very much this is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio Now, we're talking a little bit about Melbourne Festival on the program today, but there's another festival waiting in the wings, a vast, ambitious and, I've got to say, bloody exciting festival. Uh, it's not just running for a couple of weeks, it's running for a few months. It's called the Asia-Pacific Triennial of Performing Arts, or Asia Topa for short, and is being presented by a, a consortium of rather significant arts organisations in Melbourne with many, many partners. Joining me now in the studio to tell us more, the uh, creative director of Asia Topa, Stephen Armstrong, and its Associate Director, Kate Ben-Tovum. Welcome to Triple R. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having us. Stephen, uh, how on earth did this vast conglomerate of uh, exciting things come about? Yeah, well, Kate and I have long thought that the absence of contemporary uh, Asian art on our performing arts stages uh, was a question to be asked um, and, a, and, and possibly a problem to be solved. And we, we were very, also very aware that a lot of practice does happen um, in the independent sector, that intercultural collaboration is a very natural ambition for um, uh, artists who work in more flexible forms. Um, but it's a much more difficult thing for the so-called heritage forms. So for our main stage companies who nonetheless dominate our, um, uh, our audience experience, um, there was a big gap. So how do we kind of address this? How do, how do we bring the excitement and the possibility and the skill and the ambition and the contemporaneity of what was happening in the independent sector into an event uh, which also engages our, you know, beloved resident companies at Arts Centre Melbourne uh, and um, the, the main stage players in the South Bank Arts Precinct. We also recognise, of course, that uh, the visual arts and screen art and, uh, and literature are streets ahead of the performing arts in this regard. So it's not like we had to drag anyone kicking and screaming. Uh, but we did recognise that we had to create a context that was uh, offering uh, profile. It was offering 
um, uh, argument, if you like. It was offering confidence, it was capacity building, and it would have legacy. So they're what Asia Topo reaches for, and which is why it kind of has to be a bit big to achieve that. Yeah. Kate, was it difficult to persuade some of the consortium partners to come on board with contemporary work from Asia as opposed to the, the kind of classical law, um, traditional work that they may be used to showing? I mean, at Art Centre Melbourne, for example, or at um, the Recital Centre, if you think of Asian art, you might think of, I don't know, um, classical Chinese music, for example, yeah. being played. Or, or or uh, uh, peaking opera or something mm. like that, as opposed to the kind of new innovative work that is being made in our kind of Asia-Pacific partners? Um, I think the short answer to that is actually no. It wasn't uh, a, a difficult request at all in that actually all of the consortium partners we talked to and then all of the program partners, there's another um, almost 20-plus program partners who are um, uh, small to medium sector organisations or festival partners. Um, I think there was a real sense that people that our partners wanted to be presenting more contemporary work from Asia, they, they felt that this was exciting for their organisations, that this was something audiences really wanted to see and I guess Asia Topa gave people a sort of a, a, a confidence of numbers um, and a context to perhaps take those more, to take those risks to um, to explore a new pathway or maybe a new artistic partnership that they'd been wanting to explore for a while but maybe you know didn't have the space in their regular programming or you know didn't have the confidence to to know that their audience would go for it so so actually um the conversations we had were um really welcoming and and bringing the consortium together um and working collectively has been a really kind of positive process actually i think we've all actually surprised ourselves a little <laughs> bit you know sometimes we don't do that so well in the arts in melbourne i think but i think we together we've it's actually been an incredibly positive process where we've all gone this is a real common goal you know i think everybody wants to do more of this kind of programming everybody wants to see more diverse work on their stages and and perhaps reflected in their audiences so how can we do this together and to share one another's uh, relationships. Mm. Yeah, that, that notion of sharing is something that I find really intriguing because uh, a few years ago the, the state government, uh, a previous state government, launched a, uh, a precinct plan for, mm -hmm. for South Bank and all the arts organisations there and wanted to see more collaboration and wanted to see also more fine grain on the streets kind of work as well. And so I find it fascinating that the way all those different organisations uh, down in and around the South Bank Arts Precinct, the way they've come together is with this kind of vital contemporary uh, mm. season of work and it is a season it's more than just a festival because it's running over four months we're talking about uh, January to April 2017 yeah. Richard we struggled so yeah. hard with the word we, we didn't use the F word for yes. a long time <laughs> we try not to say um, that but, uh, and, yeah. and in fact it was Kate who said you know this is a season that's yeah. what this is but when, when we talk to uh, members of our, our public um, our public when we, when we talk to um, uh, audiences uh, they didn't see season in that sense Mm. Uh, at all, and they just said, "No, it's a festival." And Melbourne loves a festival. Man, you know that. Does it ever. So you know, but, but it is true. I, I, I really do think that. I mean, we try not to be parochial about this, but I really do think that this could only have happened in Melbourne. Um, and Kate and I were part of the original consortium that founded the Dance Massive Initiative, mm. and that was a case of not going to government and saying, "Give us money to be a festival." That was a case of four presenting organisations or three three venues uh, and the uh, Oz Dance saying there needs to be a concentration of contemporary dance, that's how we'll build audience, that's how we'll create extra um, opportunity, that's how we'll actually create uh, capacity, if you like. Um, and we just 
did it. Um, and by programming at the same time with our own resources and our own aesthetics and our own artistic rationale, we ended up creating something that's become a really nationally significant event. Um, and it's, it's gone on. And so it was the most obvious sort of model for us to then replicate. The challenge, of course, was that we were going to be doing it with, uh, with the top end of town. Um, but in fact... You know, our, our arts institutions are being led by people who mm. who are often looking for ways to break out of mm. um, inherited uh, ways of doing things. And I think the often the most often the conversation began with a shared interest in an artist. You know, in somebody saying, "This I, I've seen this work; it's really exciting. Kind of doesn't fit with us, but maybe be interesting for you." Or you know, maybe we can bring an orchestra into this. Or you know, there was gen most conversations began with a, a shared interest about a work or an artist. And you know, every you know, all of our colleagues are fantastic, you know, programmers, artistic innovators who are kind of excited to do things together if we can. And the advantage, of course, that we had was that. Arts Centre Melbourne has had an Asian arts program uh, for more than a decade. So there was infrastructure and, and opportunity there for Kate and I to travel and the capacity to bring artists to Melbourne for open-ended laboratories to, to invite artists to connect uh, and see what happened. And uh, quite a number of the projects that we then went on to commission and, and produce for Asia Topa came out of that scenario. So there were opportunities for our colleagues to connect um, not necessarily with the artists that they were going to work with, but to have open in, open conversations around the culture and the possibility, um, and it might even be through a, a another producer or festival director that, in fact, the the collaboration came into being. But you have to have something ongoing. You have to have open-ended possibility. If you think that you can just have a program called "Oh, the Asian Work" uh, and it will, you know, it will get up and it will it will go on in the same way as the rest of your program. It just won't. So, but that's what the independent sector know because everything the independent sector does, it does differently. Whereas we fall into patterns when we're, when we're institutions. Yeah. Uh, now, if you'd like to see what's on offer at Asia Topa while the three of us are talking, you can jump online, www.asiatopa.com.au to browse the program. One of the things that excites me about uh, the Asia Pacific Triennial of Performing Arts is, for starters, for the last several years, I've been um, kind of haranguing festival directors saying, well, where's the art from the Pacific region? Why are we so far... Uh, and, and art from Asia? But I want to see work from... Uh, Aotearoa. I want to see work that's being made in in the Pacific Islands and so forth in uh, in Papua New Guinea. And I'm not seeing it now. Major festivals, and surely it's if anyone's going to present it, they they could. So that excites me. But it also excites me that there's been a, a, an ongoing conversation in the art sector around not just diversifying the work we see on our stages, but dif diversifying our audiences as well. Because when I go to the theatre, I look around and go, this is so white. This is mm -hmm. not reflective of the Melbourne I know and live in. How will Asia Topa help bring new audiences into these existing venues and organisations such as the Malthouse, the MTC, the Recital Centre, Art Centre Melbourne and so forth? On the one hand, it's a challenge um, and we're working... Obviously, we have a communications and a marketing strategy for this initiative which, which, which dives deep into... Uh, some of the uh, the communities that we're actually uh, exploring their heritage with. But we don't want to assume that by putting on a work um, with uh, Indonesian artists that that is who we're doing it for. We're doing it for all of Melbourne. We're a multicultural society. We're just as interested in one another's heritage as we are in our own. Um, but we are ob obviously um, making inroads uh, uh, and, and talking and exploring ways of community members actually promoting the work 
to themselves, to their own own communities. Um, putting an ad in the Age is probably not going to sell a work to <laughs> the Indonesian community uh, or to the uh, the Indian community, for instance. I mean, and there is no one Indian community. I mean, mm. there are many uh, communities who share a heritage from the Indian subcontinent. Uh, so we're being quite sophisticated around how we actually reach out. Um, and secondly, obviously, the obvious strategy is that we have spread the uh, the joy of communicating the program to all of the program partners and all of the consortium members and to... Uh, we've had fabulous relationship with DFAT, um, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, who've supported a number of our commissions and who are engaging with us in, engaging with us in a fairly big way. So we have advocates um, and they have capacity. So we're actually, by not being a festival uh, with a singular management and infrastructure taking responsibility for the whole, we actually have advantage of a much broader um, spread. And I think also um, we have tried in, in some certain points to, to really program artists who are, you know, hugely well-known to communities that may not be, you know, they may not be well-known to everybody listening, but so so the music of A.R. Rayman, our big concert in the bowl, um, A.R. Rayman is, he's sold more albums than the Beatles, for example. Um, I mean, he is to any... Um, Probably any Indian listening, um, probably most people of subcontinental heritage, anyone who's listened to Bollywood, he is so famous. I mean, he's astronomically famous. Um, so uh, he's one example of, and there's an, a number of other works who are of artists we're working with who are, you know, really, really quite well known to other audiences. So we're hoping that um, by programming um, in some certain areas, um, artists who really do have a, a, a very big profile to other communities, that that will in um, some way give us a little bit of a crossover between, you know, our sort of mainstream um, arts communities and audiences who may not be regular goers mm. to places like um, Art Centre Melbourne yeah. or all of now, our venues. Given that there are more than 60 events, including and very importantly, 25 commissions, which mm. is just fantastic, new works having their premiere uh, as part of Asia Topa. But it's a huge program. We, can, we can't talk about... We'd be here for 45 minutes talking mm -hmm. ab about it in detail, which we can't do. My next guests are already waiting outside. But if you could kind of give us examples of just just a couple of events which you think represent the, the kind of chemistry or the, the creative approach to programming that's being represented to give us something of the flavour of Asia Topa. A number of themes that we've, we've explored or that have driven our kind of decision making uh, have been direct voice. So we're very interested in um, not simply uh, representatives of, of, of cultures because they, they don't exist uh, you know l people who are living in uh, cities or in regional centres or in remote areas um, in Indonesia have their own way of expressing what makes them uh, uh, what gives them value how they want to present themselves to their own uh, communities at large and how they want to affect change through participating in art. So the Cry Jalolo and Balabala uh, performances have young people from uh, a remote community in Indonesia actually performing. They've spent a year working with a really um, extremely talented and established artist, Iko Suprianto, to create a movement language that they can communicate. So they're not using text, they're actually using their bodies. But to talk about their lives as young people in an environment that is at risk, uh, or young women who are saying, well, what, what is the nature of my gender in this um, uh, globalised world, uh, but living in a remote Indonesian community? The Mangania classroom 
offers the same opportunity for 40 young boys under 10 years old to actually use their traditional, um, their inherited uh, culture, the, the incredible musicality, to actually talk about what opportunities are they going to have in a remote part of India because there is very little offered to them by way of education. So... Though, um, and there are a whole raft of projects which actually take this approach of offering direct voice opportunities. Okay. Um, and I think there's we have um, looked very much at this idea of collaborations. You know, of, of really inviting some of our. Um, you know, favourite companies really to to collaborate with artists from the region. And one beautiful thing we've invited Circa, you know, very loved um, contemporary circus company from Brisbane, to collaborate with some Indian artists. Uh, they're artists that perform of uh, something called Malakam, which is kind of between gymnastics and wrestling. Really, it's an, an Indian form, and some really interesting contemporary music artists from India. A wonderful pianist um, called Utsav Lal, who kind of sounds like if Keith Jarrett went to an ashram in Rishikesh, he'd kind of come out sounding like this. It's 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 surreal but beautiful um so you know they're making a, a new work for asia topa similarly we're working with the melbourne symphony orchestra to um collaborate on a project really special project called satanjawa we've commissioned in indonesia's quite very well-known filmmaker garden Nugroho to make we've commissioned him to make a silent film based on a javanese myth and and commission a live score with um uh, indonesian and australian composer working together for a mixed ensemble of indonesian um gamelan and the melbourne symphony orchestra so it's a huge process it's it's going to take about a year and a half in total and it's a real journey into you know understandings of new notation systems new new tuning systems new ways of collaborating really so it's big big for the MSO and then big for us iconic works like the red detachment of women and being able to offer the red detachment of women a work made in the 60s during the, the cultural revolution um, and Taye's work uh, 6 and 8 a completely avant-garde uh, work from contemporary China and to see those two works alongside one another, I don't think that there would be very many opportunities f- for that outside of Asia Tova. I'm looking forward to those opportunities. I'm looking forward to being uh, challenged by new aesthetics, new ideas that I've not seen on stages before. And I'm just looking forward to having some uh, a really interesting few months at the start of 2017. The inaugural Asia-Pacific Triennial of Performing Arts, Asia Topa for short, is running from January through to April at multiple venues with multiple partners. Uh, in Melbourne. More details at www.asiatopa.com.au I've been talking to Stephen and Kate about the program. I wish we had more time to go into more detail, but uh, think of that as a teaser and uh, we'll come back to you in January. Look forward to coming back, Richard. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au